Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. I play a lot of words with friends, and in the beginning, I thought it would really enhance my vocabulary. And I have learned certain words. I mean, one I learned from watching Curb Your Enthusiasm when Larry David used the term foist, so I put foisted in, and I got 47 points. But I gotta tell you, as I play more and more, I think it's just, it's a crutch to learning because you just make up words to see if they'll fit. There's a word that is in the game called quat, and it's Q-A-T. Now, I'm 53 years old, and I had never heard the word quat. And I looked it up in a dictionary on their uh, site, and it said it's not even a word. It's just something that they can't prove. So I'm telling you, if you're playing words with friends, Play me, I'm Cooper Talk One, but make sure that you're using really words that are real because some aren't. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's an amazing singer songwriter who's actually his new album you can pre order right now, and he's going to be going on tour very soon. And my guest is Matthew Sweet. How you doing, Matthew? Good, how are you? Good. Now, I, I got to ask you, you being a singer songwriter, what is your vocabulary like? Did you, do you have to learn new words or do you use a, a you know, a thesaurus, or how does it, how do you, I mean, I'm thinking because you, you write a lot of songs, you've had such a long career, how do you come up with words and make sure they work? You know, I, I just kind of through stream of consciousness, I never, I know I don't use a thesaurus, I don't try to like, I don't try to get in that sort of micro level of looking to change words, unless if, if a word is bothering me, I just have a sense of what to change it to, you know, until it sort of doesn't bug me. Um, it's hard, you know, sometimes every now and then there's a thing I did and I'm like, I wish I'd have said something slightly different, but um, I always have playing live where I can change a couple things. <laughs> but it's so funny you were talking about quat because uh, I play Scrabble against the computer a lot and that's one of the words you can use a Q without a U. Um, and they they accepted on Scrabble too, so I don't know. <laughs> I know. I, I I tried to look it up, and, and, and like just I googled it, and a word with a K H A T came up. And you're right. There's so many. There's not a lot of words that you can use without a U. And with words with friends, you sit there with that Q, and you're going, well, if I don't get a U or a blank, I'm pretty much screwed. Yes, it's true. There's a few. Um, they're weird. They're S U Q. Right. is one that um, is in my mind that I know will work. <laughs> um, I, I haven't looked that one up. They don't have a direct um, spot within the Scrabble app to uh, look up meanings of words, which it kind of is a bummer. I wish you could just click on the word and it would tell you you know, what it was right then. Exactly. See, well, I, I, I meant to play it online too because Words with Friends is addicting, but you play sometimes with people and you play against people and you play them and then all of a sudden you don't hear from them for two weeks and you're like, well, why am I even playing you if this game's going to take me a month? <laughs> yeah, I've done some Words with Friends and it, it is kind of, I get into periods where I'm keeping up on a bunch of games and then sort of fall out of, doing it for a while. I I go on Scrabble up against two uh, computers um, on a kind of intermediate level, and uh, I can, often I can win, um, but it's not, you know, it's not a super difficult. Um, anyway, back 
to music or whatever, but it just was funny to me you were talking about uh, Words with Friends. Now, um, i got to ask you, you started playing, when did you start playing music? I know in high school I was reading something that you recorded some music, but when did you start falling in love with music? Um, I was really quite young, you know, even uh, when I was in like third and fourth grade, I played, you know, the recorder. I had some piano lessons when I was really young, um, and I played the violin a little bit in sort of fifth grade. And then I started, I got an electric bass, I think sometime during fifth grade. And uh, I literally, you know, thought electric guitars looked cool. And I didn't know whether I should get the four string one or the six string one. And there was a a band teacher at uh, my grade school who said, get the four string one because we can use it in um, band. And so I originally was a bass player and I really learned music through listening to records and learning the bass lines off of them. Um, and that's how I got into it. And it just was a thing I really enjoyed doing. And I, you know, eventually played in bands once I was in junior high and in high school, I was from about 13 years old, I was playing with uh, people who were sort of college age. So I'd sort of, you know, was the underage sneaking into the club so we could play rock shows. You know? <laughs> now, you're playing, and I know eventually you go to Georgia because the scene was booming then. I think we're around the same age, and that was a very cool scene. You know, that was it was something that big on college radio, even though college radio wasn't that big then. What was it like for you to be around, you know, the Athens scene when you were at a young age, 18, It 19? was great. It was great. I mean, it was so such a different vibe to where I grew up you know, here in Nebraska, where I live now uh, is in Omaha, but I grew up in the in Lincoln, which is was a college town. It was a cool place to grow up or whatever. But the whole feeling of Athens, especially at that time, I think the city's grown quite a bit since then. Uh, but it still had this kind of small town feel to its music scene and REM were just starting uh, to get really big. I think they were, I met them when they just had their 45 out. I bought it out of New York Rocker magazine, some uh, New York record store uh, mail order. And then they came to play. I went to see them at the this club, The Drumstick, in uh, Lincoln. And, you know, they were like, hey, this kid has our 45, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of got to know them a little bit, talked to them a lot about Mitch Easter, who I was interested in, who produced their music. And then they made Chronic Town and came back through Lincoln. And then by the time I moved to Athens was right around, I believe, when Murmur came out or maybe Murmur had come out a few months earlier. And... Uh, so that was sort of magic to see them. I, I was a fan of a lot of the other groups there, Pylon and Love Tractor and uh, the independent records they were making. You know, I really thought it was cool. You know, they did their own songs. And then, you know, there was people from the B-52s were still hanging around um, down in Athens. And it just had this kind of magic... Uh, thing about it the, the you know antebellum sort of 
slightly scary ghost story <laughs> vibe of sort of the just how it was hot and humid and everything um, was just really kind of intoxicating. Well, the scene like that, because you said it's intoxicating to you, how did that really help you start to develop more as a singer-songwriter? And did that sort of get you into your own sound? Well, I was already making four tracks. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if we could go back and listen to what, what I was doing, you know, when I was first there, it probably echoed Athens more than you think of me doing, you know. Um, there was just this sort of a little bit vibe about kind of guitar parts and stuff where they were very uh, angular kind of uh, in that, in almost like a Tom Verlaine way where there's kind of sometimes a, uh, it's hard for me to explain exactly what I mean, but Pylon had that and um, Love Tractor, maybe not as much R.E.M., but I was I made demos and got different people to like sing with me or do things on them. But it wasn't you know, and then then I just started working on eight tracks and uh yeah, just working more, doing stuff all on my own at home and uh that led to my first uh record deal with Columbia Records in New York. So I wasn't in Athens a real long time. I was there just about two years maybe slightly less. I got there summer of 83 when I graduated from high school, and I went to New York in spring of 85. Um, so it was a whirlwind, but that first sort of year, and year and a half, um, I you know went to parties and kind of hung out, kind of fly on the wall around a lot of the people from bands. And, you know, I was just like a kid who was starstruck by, that, by these guys even though they weren't big stars in the world yet, they were, you know, a thing that to me, they were doing the coolest thing, you know? Right. Now, now your first record deal, was that, you know, you were recording at home and stuff like that. Was it hard for you to get? I mean, back then, it was the, the 86, I believe, when your first deal was. Was it a hard road to getting a record deal? Did it come pretty easily to you? No, it came pretty easily. I, I got a call from a guy who was, at the time, working at... I want to say maybe EMI, a guy named Steve Robofsky, and he got it, somehow got a tape of mine. I guess I sent a few tapes around. I think uh, Jefferson Holt, who was REM's manager, helped me, you know, get some names to send cassettes to, you know. So I kind of blindly sent a few things around. But Steve was interested, and he actually came down to Athens to meet me, and we hung out a little bit. And then when he started a new job at Columbia Records, he did with me really what was sort of, we called it a development deal, where I spent time making demos and working at home with the idea that we would make an album, but it was sort of like contingent on how that work went. You know, So I moved to New York and kept doing tons of demos, and it was a thing I really loved to do, so it was never bad when they asked for more you know i could always kind of do more and uh the thing that was the weirdest about it to me really was that uh they said you know we think you should use your real name and be a solo artist 
and I just really had never imagined myself that way, having to be sort of that real. I think I thought of things more in terms of I would have a group name or something, you know. Um, but they sort of talked me into that and in a weird way talked me into bagging school and moving to New York and, you know, going for this this thing. So uh, that was, and, you know, it was really unpopular among people I knew in Athens, this idea that I would get a record deal when I hadn't toured like R.E.M. and built up a following in all these college towns and done it that way. It was sort of like people kind of were looked down on <laughs> the way I got my deal, which I thought was sort of weird. I don't know, it left me a little bit feeling kind of weird from it, you know. But, uh, but you know, what was I going to do? I was so young and, you know, I wanted to go in recording studios and record, and I wanted to make up music, and so it was, you know, a dream come true for me. So you, you record the album, and now in the early part of your career, your your albums got very, they were critically acclaimed. People really liked them, the critics liked them, but they weren't real popular. How's an artist, what do you do as an artist to, and being young, because as you say, when we're young, we're very pretty much insecure. Well, we're always insecure if we perform. But how as an artist do you sit there and keep on track? Like, it must get frustrating, but you know you're good because people are saying good things about it. Well, you know, um, I was weirdly, I think of myself as being like, how could I have been this way? But I was weirdly oblivious to the idea that, you know, if you don't have some success, you won't get to keep making records. I think I had such a strong feeling of just wanting to do music, I just kind of thought I'll do it on whatever way that I can, you know. Um, but by the time it was Girlfriend, you know, it was a, a hugely lucky, amazing thing that I had a record that actually sold. You know, on a and I got more attention for my second record. Um, it got a little more radio and stuff, but also didn't really sell. And uh, so when it, it when I made Girlfriend, we actually sold it. They got A&M to sell it to this little BMG label, Zoo Entertainment. And they believed in it. And weirdly, it sort of started to take off and went up the college charts and then got onto some rock radio. And it was just a mystery. It wasn't something I expected or could ever imagine how I could make that happen. You know, the idea of sort of being away so I could be successful just never felt easy to me. It's something about the way I do music. It's not that cobbled together. You know what I mean? It's like sort of these weird germs of an idea that pop out, and then I grapple with making that thing into a song, you know. So uh, I should have felt a lot more pressure than I did. Um, but I was just excited to be working with, you know, my different friends and exploring making music because I really hadn't been um, being Matthew Sweet for that long, you know. Now, now, when Girlfriend became big, I know, it, you know, got on MTV, what was, you know, what did you think the 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 role in videos back then was because now videos really no one watches, but back then everybody watches it. Did you know that you had a hit? when MTV was playing it? 
I knew that when if MTV played it, it meant it would sell some records. You know, that was the first thing I kind of knew about that. If you get up on um, a certain realm of MTV, it might start making sales happen. Or if it does, it means your thing could sort of happen. It was um, interesting. I was very uncomfortable with being in videos. I didn't want to be just the guy standing there playing guitar. I was just kind of awkward about it. Um, and so you know, that's why, like, if you look at the girlfriend video where we got this Japanese animation that I liked and made the video out of that, I tried to, like, get things in the videos that I liked so that, like, it was palatable to have to make a video, you know? Um, and so they were these little projects, you know, when we did the time capsule video where it's like insects were crawling all over me as a kid, I really dug like exotic insects and things. Um, so it was things that I like and the liked in the videos. And yes, it felt like video was going to be very, very important and only would become more so in the future, you know, <laughs> and people spent labels spent an incredible amount of money making videos. Of course, the technology available to the average person now, you can make a video that's probably pretty cool with like an iPhone or something, you know. Um, but at the time, all of that stuff was um, a little more uh, specialized. And uh, so, yeah, it was a whole realm, the video thing. Um, it's one of the kind of nice things about these days is I don't really ever feel like I need to make a video. I think it's something I could get into um, if I could. I just don't know that there's enough people who care for me to sort of care, you know? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, videos, as you said, I mean, everyone remembers videos, and it's it's right now, it's like people I don't think really watch videos. I don't think they even have the intention span to watch a Three That's what it is. Yeah. I think I think you're right. It just is a thing, you know, the way people watched MTV was just in a world that went so much more slowly, you know. Now you're you're developing, you know, you have the album girlfriend and you've constantly written and keep writing and you produce music. In the early nineties and mid nineties, did you feel that your songwriting was changing or did you feel like you were creating a different sound? How were you growing as a musician? That's hard to answer, you know. Um, I think that those years were a little tense for me in that there was expectation then, after Girlfriend was successful, um, that there was sort of this implied pressure, like the next record needs to be successful, you know. Nobody ever really tried to make me do any certain thing, but there was just a little bit of that sort of awkwardness. And so... Um, I don't know, like, I think that I didn't start to become really comfortable about, um, songwriting and recording and everything until it was sort of getting into the late nineties when it wasn't as much sort of my time. Um, I feel like now I'm as comfortable as ever and that probably back then I would have been a little more awkward about it. Like I wouldn't have understood what I do now about how it can be ushered out of thin air, kind of, you know. At the time, um, I was probably based a little more in the way I was playing things and 
tunings of guitars and stuff. Uh, now, it, I think other things I did in my life, like learning to um, throw pottery on a wheel and stuff, made my songwriting illuminated by kind of finding a magic moment where you're not really thinking about what's coming out, you know? And I think that my awareness of that sort of developed over time, you know? So I was so busy, you know, during those records, sort of Girlfriend, Altered Beast, and then 100% Fun. And Altered Beast was sort of thought of as weird, but it's still sort of sold, you know? And then uh, 100% Fun, I had this hit with Sick of Myself, and I remember I, I really liked that I could have a song that was on the radio and sort of thought of as commercial that had such a sort of a weird lyric to it, you know, that was a more um, melancholy sort of viewpoint. Um, it was always stuff that was more upbeat that they wanted, you know, for the radio. That's what the radio people would sort of pick, you know. And so whenever there was something with a little more depth in it, or it wasn't just a fun rock song, and then that got on the radio, that made me happy, you know? Right. Now, I want to talk about some of your other music, but I want to talk about your latest uh, your latest album, which comes out, your, your pre-order, it's Tomorrow's Daughter. Now, does that have something to do with Tomorrow Forever? Because there's two albums that have come out a year between that both have Tomorrow in it. Yes. Um, t Tomorrow's Daughter, when I, I recorded 38 songs um, during the time I was working on Tomorrow Forever. And originally for the Kickstarter campaign I did, um, I was actually going to make demos of songs before I recorded them. And then you could, all, you could purchase a download of demos as one of the things you could sort of get. And... Uh, once I got into the project and it was taking me a lot longer than I thought and people were getting slightly riled up about how long it was taking, I, meet, I realized really quickly I don't have time to make demos and then make recordings. I've got to just make real recordings, a whole bunch of them. So when I made the album Tomorrow Forever, it was a certain bunch of songs and everything that fit together, but I felt like I had another record to, to put together out of it. And so I write up that to Tomorrow's Daughter album. I was thinking of the title a little bit like Son of Altered Beast, even though Son of Altered Beast really wasn't an album album of its own as much as Tomorrow's Daughter is. Um, once I then, those few people who had gotten de demo downloads, they got Tomorrow's Daughter as a download. So it's been out in the world in this teeny kind of way because there were very few people who had purchased it. And, you know, immediately I knew back then I've got to release at some point this album. And so it was something I was sort of saying to... Uh, my management last year when we were promoting Tomorrow Forever was like, you know, I really want to put out uh, Tomorrow's Daughter, you know, as its own standalone album before it gets, you know, into the future too far, you know. And they were into it, and people at Sony who helped distribute my 
label were into it, and so amazingly we got it together quickly enough that uh, we could get it out in time for me to do my touring in 2018 and kind of keep that feeling going a little bit. It's a different album than Tomorrow Forever. It's not, but it's not like an outtakes album. It's really not um, a B-sides album. It's a bunch of songs that worked on their own to me as a record. Now, in both albums and through your career with with your different albums, have you always been someone who is very into the way the tracks play? Like, I grew up as an album kid, so it was very important that, you know, track one, two, three, four, you listen to a whole side of an album, and you listen to it. Do you get involved personally with yes. how the tracks, and, and what? how do you decide how they'll flow? It's a thing that's kind of by feel, you know? Um, you just kind of know when one works after the other. You sort of have favorite songs that you want to kind of start with and then you try them in different orders and in my experience it comes together magically easily in some way it may be just for me I have a strong feeling about what works for me so I can kind of just make those decisions and say this is what it's going to be um, you know I had other people who were listening to some of the songs from Tomorrow Forever and they would occasionally, you know, uh, push for like a song they liked or something, but um, never really have I had other people get involved in the sequencing. It's just something I do, um, you know, just uh, by feel. I remember when I was sequencing Tomorrow's Daughter, my wife was sitting in the studio just sort of watching like a fly on the wall, and uh, she was so into sort of that process, and she was trying to keep from, like, saying, you know, that one doesn't work, or, you know, try that one, because she didn't want to, you know, overstep some boundary. But I would, like, get a thing, and then it was the one that, like, worked, and I would look at her, and she'd be like, yeah, that one works. <laughs> you know? So I think maybe anybody who would be sitting around, we would all sort of agree what worked after which thing, you know? Now, you said that you recorded 38 songs at the time. How do you decide what songs will make the cut? And is it something that how many how many songs you choose, or is there, is there a time frame you have? Like you say, okay, I want this album to be 60 minutes, so that's these songs work. Or how do you... No, no, I never thought about the time. Um, I think, you know, I was a little bit careful about... I didn't want to just make an album with... 25 songs on it or something you know I wanted it to like feel like an album like you said with a sequence of things and songs that sort of work together um uh I think uh mostly in my experience I've just picked all my favorite songs sometimes I didn't record enough songs that it wasn't sort of preordained you know if I only did 15 songs I'm usually going to use sort of 13 of those or something to make an album. Um, but uh, in the case of Tomorrow Forever, I'd done so much work. I drafted more people. You know, I had more family and friends who listened to uh, all the songs. And what that told me, for the most part, 
was everybody kind of picked the same things. And even a lot of what uh, is on Tomorrow's Daughter were favorite things of other people as well, you know, um, and just ended up on that instead of the other record. Um, but, um, you know, for me, I mostly like, even when they don't come out that great, I'm kind of inclined to fight for my little songs, you know. Um, but, uh, and it just occasionally there's things I don't like. I mean, there's, there are songs, you know, I wish, I thought about, oh, I'd like to put more of the other songs on Tomorrow's Daughter, but it really worked for me as this 12-song thing. So there are still even some more songs from all the sessions, which were three, three big batches of songs that made up both these albums. Now, I know you moved back to Nebraska from L.A., and I'm someone who just moved back to New Jersey where I grew up after being 17 years in L.A. What? Oh, wow. Yeah, what made you move back to Nebraska? What made you leave L.A.? And I want to know what your experiences are once you've left, because I've noticed some different changes. I think I'm more relaxed because you're not always worrying about traffic. But what made you yes. des- what made you decide to move, and how, are you, how have you adjusted? I know it's been a few years for you, though. Yeah, well, we've been here, I guess, about four years, and our path of decision-making and moving happened really quickly. We were, you know, uh, our house in Los Angeles was sort of our nest egg, and it had grown in value a lot since we purchased it in, we'd been there 20 years. And it, you know, went down quite a lot in value during the crash in the late uh, 2000s or whatever. And then um, it had slowly sort of come back. And we were just at a point where we thought, you know, let's sell the house and we'll go somewhere else and get out of the crunch of the city. My wife had had a whole lot of jobs in being a personal assistant, being an estate manager, these really demanding jobs with celebrities and wealthy people. And, you know, she was really ready to get out of the kind of slog of that. And, you know, we fantasized, we'll move to Hawaii, you know, because we thought it was so amazing, you know, when we went there. And we'll move to way northern California on the water, you know, there was this place called Sea Ranch that we thought, like, that would be a cool place to sort of live. But the problem was none of them made that much sense uh, logistically for me for having to tour as kind of my main way of making money. I need to be where there's an airport and I have easy, you know, travel in and out. And so... We really, my wife suggested us coming back to Nebraska, and we were sort of looking at houses online and saw this place that kind of caught our imagination. Um, and really, as much as anything, with seeing the sort of house and the being able to imagine, you know, where we would be, because I'm very much kind of a hermit. I'm not a big social person, and really, neither is my wife. So, we're kind of two peas in a pod, kind of a little bit loners, you know, wherever we live. And so it meant a lot of us to just have a place that we sort of dug where we'd be living. Um, but, you know, to come where we both had family, um, it was intense to come back to where, you know, I was born and where I first grew up. 
I'm I'm a person who's never been able to remember super clearly all of my really young childhood or even into my teens the way some of my friends can, you know, where they just remember exact things. All of that was sort of foggy to me, and I felt like um, once I came back here, more of it started to come back to me and kind of fill in the blanks, not just about what had happened, but kind of my feelings, just remembering, connecting to how I felt. Like when you asked me, how did you first feel music, you know, I remember more like when I first played the electric bass and what it was like to learn off the records and everything, and and that gave me a feeling that of uh, the strong sort of base um, from which to you know start recording more music. Um, there's a lot of things that are just not being in a giant metropolis that are awesome, you know, just little things and errands and and like you said, traffic. Um, you know, the air is much, much nicer and cleaner. Um, it really different thing is like we have seasons here, you know, nice. <laughs> and that's what I grew up with, like really intense winters and and really nice springs and falls and super hot summers, you know, um, more of a changeable kind of a nature environment than it was for us in Los Angeles. Now I have to say, having said all this, if I was just had millions of dollars, I'd probably have a place out in Los Angeles still, you know, because I, I dig California, and you know we did make lots of friends there. Um, but uh, as a just comfort of life, and you know now I own my house, you know, so it's once again is a nest egg that can't be touched, you know, and. Being in the music business is really tough, and uh, trying to stay with anything sort of saved, at, at least for me, has been difficult. So um, the move kind of was a real positive thing to do on a lot of levels. And then on top of that, I got to spend time with both my parents, who have now both passed away since I've lived here, and really have more sustained time with them and more connection than we really had in many years when I was living in California and only came back here a little bit and they would come out and visit me there some, you know. Um, so that was is sort of like this relief that I think would have been much harder for me. It was It's hard to lose your parents and it's a weird feeling, um, at least to me, um, that kind of in a way never will go away. But I think I would have been much more um, freaked out kind of by it had I not been near and with them before they died, you know? Right. I mean, I, I lost my father when I was living in LA, but I, I'd flown back, you know, the weekend before and my girlfriend lost her stepfather when we were living in LA. And you're right. It's so weird when you're actually around your family, when this is going on, because you feel part of it when you're out in LA. I mean, basically LA is like a microcosm. We're just there. LA is completely different. You know, I always say, yeah, they coming back here, you know, my friends, I, I, I made good friends in LA, but coming back here, my friends, you know, they're more concentrated on family and, and their lives, not like, Hey, who do you know? Or, Hey, I'm doing this. Yeah, and, exactly. Exactly. And, um, and you know, we've met, people through, you know, my niece here runs some yoga studios and she has a lot of friends through her yoga studio. And so she's like hooked me up with people who are just kind of like minded a little bit and 
So I, I have made some friends here, and there, you know, I have friends here from when I was a kid who I've gotten to see. So um, it, it's good for that as well. I don't know. You know, I love L.A. Um, it was just a little bit of a rat race to kind of make enough dough to sort of um, have it make sense to stay there. And, you know, we looked also all around Los Angeles in kind of the outer line areas, but we just couldn't afford a place that kind of felt worth it to take the gamble on, you know. <laughs> um, it just uh, didn't seem like what we should do. Now, on your website, it says your new house is big enough where you can have a high-end studio. What makes your studio high-end? Uh, you know, I don't know where that comes from exactly what high-end would be other than I have, you know, an up-to-date, you know, modern Pro Tool system that I use, and I have outboard gear, analog outboard gear that everything runs through, you know, to get into Pro Tools. Um, it's the same thing, actually, as when I was in Los Angeles. I never really had a studio built in my house. I used one big room in Los Angeles for my studio, and I have a room in my house in Omaha that I use for my studio. But calling it a real studio and making a name for it and all those things, it's really kind of fun and a conceit, but it isn't really anything but my room where I record, you know? Now, when you record, I, I just funny, because I, I do your website, people, it's matthewsweet.com. About Tomorrow Forever, there's a line, and I want you to explain this. It says, you, 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 the question is, does what is real extend beyond what the consciousness can readily grasp? Explain that to me, and explain that how it comes across in your music. Okay, tell me again. I didn't quite hear the beginning of what you said. It says, in your, on your website, it talks about your Tomorrow Forever. It says, does what is real extend beyond what the consciousness can readily grasp? Um, well, I think that comes from uh, whoever the bio writer was. Um, I think that might have been Bud Scapa. He's a Rolling Stone writer from way back and was worked at labels all his life and worked at an a industry magazine called Hits. And I think what he's referring to is um, there was, you know, there are musings on Tomorrow Forever about, you know, how do you know what's real or not real? Um, and I think it, it, that probably refers to the song uh, Trick of the Light, which I I think maybe it's just called Trick on the artwork of that. And uh, that song is sort of about, you know, um, uh, not being quite sure what's real, how things happened or not. And uh, I think that it speaks to this little bit metaphysical angle to some of the songs musing about, you know, time travel, the nature of time, you know, in a lot of it. It's a similar kind of thing, but, um, you know, um, it's trying to find words for a feeling that's, you know, in some music and probably comes as much from the music as it does from the words in the song, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, no, because so besides being a singer-songwriter and, you know, being a solo act, you also have done a few, uh, actually, you've done three albums and then you did a fourth one with Susanna Haas. How did that come up? How did that come together? And the albums are called Under the Covers People. How did that come together and how did you choose what songs you would do 
And then did you think it would be more than, everything would be more than just one volume? We didn't think it would be more than one volume. Shout Factory, the label, um, really asked us, like, will you guys do a covers record together? And we wanted to do something together. I think in, in, initially I sort of wanted to do a song, an album of original music, you know, but they really wanted us to make something that was a little more novelty. And it was easy for Suzanne and I because we both really loved kind of 60s music and the idea of doing some groovy covers record, you know, was fun for us. And we've been trying to come up with a project to do together. I knew Susanna back in the 90s. Um, uh, I got to know her a lot more during the time of sort of Austin Powers when we did the uh, Ming Chi group. And uh, so at some point, I think I appeared at a Bangles and Friends uh, performance at McCabe's in Los Angeles, and uh, I said something to Sue, like, I love your voice, let's do something, and she was talking to Shout Factory at the time, so we ended up making that album, and when they did the artwork, they put volume one on it, and we didn't even know, so we were like, thought it was really funny, like, what if there's no volume two, you know, what are they thinking, you know, but we did do a volume two and a volume three, and, um, the way we decided the songs was very pretty easy. We had a lot of favorite songs that we just had in common, and then one or the other of us would have some interesting thing maybe someone else suggested, or we'd just think of a song um, and call each other and go, let's do this, you know? And we really didn't have strict criteria. They didn't all have to be songs that were obscure we sometimes thought, let's do some major song and sing it ourselves, you know. I think our, our covers records are unique in that they very much are true to the original records. They try to have that sort of feeling in the track where then we can fill the place of the people that did them and kind of feel like we're part of it, you know. And I think that's unique. Like, a lot of people do covers and they intentionally make them be not at all like the original, you know. Um, but for our thing, it was a little bit plain, you know, getting in the shoes of, of our, of the greats, you know. And then, so then it just kept rolling over, though. They kept wanting you to do more. Yeah, I mean, I think they, they probably had less and less success, you know, honestly, from record to record. I know we got sort of less and less money. Um, and, and then it also, like, we were sort of slower and slower in making them. So I think that Shout Factory was kind of frustrated with us by the last one that we did. Um, you know, an interesting thing to know, when we made the second one, it was originally going to be a, you know, quote-unquote double album. Um, and we recorded up into the 30-some songs for that. And then it was taking us so long, Shout Factory just said, we want you to make a single a single album and finish it, you know. So there's a whole lot of stuff. At some point, we'll probably resurrect from um, from that second, the 70s album that we did. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it. I think we both, uh, you know, are fine to be taking a little bit of time from doing it right now, you know. Now, you also sang with Darius Rucker. How did that come about? Darius Rucker, you know, we met on the road a few times just 
playing in the same cities and being a little bit at the same time. I was touring um, probably for Girlfriend or the couple records after when Hootie had the really big album. And uh, then I was asked by this guy, David Leaf, to sing at a tribute to Brian Wilson at Radio City Music Hall. This is around 2000 or 2001, I think. And uh, Darius and I sang together a song called Sail on Sailor um, that was, uh, I'm trying to remember which album it's on. It's kind of, kind of drawing a blank right now. But it was, you know, an old Beach Boys favorite. And it was originally sung by, I believe, Blondie Chaplin. Um, and uh, so... Darius and I sang that together at the uh, the tribute, and I believe maybe I did another song as well. I can't really remember for sure on that. I might be thinking of a, a different one. <laughs> but it was a real exciting thing to be at. A lot of, you know, big artists like, you know, people like David Crosby were there and stuff, you know, people that were like greats to me, you know, Elton John. And so it was cool to sort of be around some of those people as well. But the great thing with Darius and I is then we did a Letterman performance doing Sail on Sailor kind of as a promo for the thing at Radio City Music Hall. And then Brian also came on and did uh, Good Vibrations, and we sang Good Vibrations with him and his band. So, you know, during that time, I really got to know some of the guys in Brian's band and they were all really nice to me. I was just starting to fly again after many years of not flying at all. And so I was a little bit in a fragile state. And uh, everybody was really nice, and that was a really cool event to do. And then I flew, I think, for the first time in many years with Brian from L.A. to New York to do that Letterman performance. And uh, then that summer afterwards, I flew to Japan and played there for the first time in many years. So it was really the start of uh, a time of me traveling around a lot more, touring more, because I was able to fly. What was your fear for flying? Because I used to have a huge fear of flying. And then when I found myself with my girlfriend, I was in a cross-country relationship. So I started flying once a month. And I learned then, I, I think... It always feared me. I mean, of course, whatever, we all fear. But it was always hard for me to get to the airport because I always think I forget something. And it was the weirdest thing. It was like a... Like yeah, a, you had a weird other thing. Well, that's what would happen to me. It's like it's... I know I'm going in three weeks and I would start to have this nagging kind of bad feeling about it that was distracting. It kind of like made me unable to focus and feel kind of anxious, you know. And uh, what I know now is I suffer from bipolar disorder. And so in, in my fear of flying was really just a manifestation of being untreated for my bipolar. And once, you know, when I first started getting back on planes, um, you know, when I kept flying during the 90s, I was like having many nervous breakdowns. I just, it was making me melt down. It wasn't something I could articulate really it was just a deep undertow that was like don't go don't fly you know <laughs> and uh when i did eventually fly again i initially got on planes because i 
went to a doctor um, who did fear of flying, um, not a doctor, but actually a pilot who was also a licensed uh, psych- psychologist, I believe. And he did these courses, which he did with me over the phone. He was in New England somewhere, and I was in Los Angeles. And this was a guy who was for 30 years a pilot and flew big planes over the Atlantic the whole time. And he just taught me a whole lot about how, what the physics are of flying. And he did some sort of mental voodoo kind of uh, uh, hypnosis-type exercises with me. And But what really made it so I didn't care at all about flying was when I got treated for bipolar, which was, you know, a little bit after that, probably around 2003. And then... I could understand how other people could just fly and be okay because I felt normal. But what I have now that's so great is I have that, uh, I have all this stuff that the pilot did with me and it has this effect on me subconsciously where when I'm going to the airport now, I start to feel sleepy and kind of not a feeling of anxiousness or anything, but more a feeling of, this sleepy kind of well-seen feeling, like before I even get there. And by the time I'm on a plane, I'm falling asleep. It's the strangest thing. You know, I used to take things to try to sleep on a plane, and I would be wired awake even though I took them, you know. But now I just have this kind of easygoing thing about it, and I just just know how safe it is. I start thinking this thing he would say to me, safe in my bed, even safer on the plane. Like, it's so much more likely something's going to happen to you at home in bed than it is on a plane, you know. And and so I guess that just sort of ingrained itself for me. And it's just so much. I did so much driving, um, you know, at a time when I was having a lot of success with uh, 100% fun and sick of myself. I didn't fly at all, you know, for that album. So... It really was a detriment probably to me. I could have promoted it a lot more and done a lot more, but I was just sort of sticking to buses and driving long distances when I had to if a tour ended somewhere far away, you know. Now your tour your, your tour for Tomorrow's Daughter starts June 13th. Now, how did you decide what cities you're going to play to and what can people expect to see when they come to your show? Are you going to play the whole album or are you going to play select tracks from it or how, what are you going to play you know we'll probably only play a couple songs from uh tomorrow's daughter that's usually what we do with a new album i think we were playing maybe we played three or four off tomorrow forever but it was a, it's a much longer album it has 17 songs where tomorrow's daughter is 12 songs so my guess is we'll keep doing a couple from tomorrow forever and we'll add a couple from uh uh, Tomorrow's Daughter. Uh, we do a wide range of things from kind of all my albums. Um, maybe not a whole lot of obscure stuff because there's sort of so many things that are kind of favorite songs. We spent a few years doing the whole Girlfriend album as well. So we have a strong roster kind of of Girlfriend songs that, you know, fans really dig, you know, when I play live. But I try to get some new stuff in there, and we definitely will do that this year. As far as the touring and how it sort of gets scheduled, usually they have, you know, a few dates that are good 
you know, what they call kind of anchor dates where we get, you know, a good offer somewhere, and then they kind of fill in around them. We actually start our shows in uh, May, I think from May sort of 23rd, 24th, 25th, 26th, somewhere right in there. We're doing four dates in like Atlanta and North Carolina, um, kind of down in that area. And then we start up at the Birchmere in uh, <clears throat> Alexandria, which is, you know, a real favorite club of ours. Um, and uh, we kind of go north into New England and, and all around for that through June and end up back out here in Nebraska. And then I think we're going out and doing a few more sort of Midwest Chicago and St. Louis, Kansas City, those sort of shows in July. And that's kind of what I know about so far. I think there will be West Coast as well sometime toward maybe more toward the fall. How How is touring for you these days? Is it a grind like it used to be? I mean, not about the flying, not about the driving, but just personally the in and outs of, you know, getting done your show and getting up the next day. Has it changed over well, the years? You have to get in the mode of doing it. You sort of get up to speed after a few days, you know. Um, to be traveling, to be doing that. My focus is mostly on trying to get enough sleep, um, trying to get my voice back every day, you know, from uh, from uh, doing so much singing all the time. You know, I've started now before, you know, a few weeks before I'm going out, singing a few songs every day and getting my voice warmed up a little bit. Um, but it's something I really enjoy. It's really cool. You know, no matter who comes, a lot of people or a few people, they're people that are really diehard fans. Um, so the shows are always kind of a good time. It's never, you know, a big drag where I can't stand it, really. It's only if I have challenges of, you know, singing and if I get sick or things like that that make it a little more difficult, you know. Now, do you have your encores already planned out? How does a, how does an artist decide on what they're going to encore with? Well, we aren't, aren't actually doing um, rehearsals before these dates start, and uh, so we'll probably come up with it sort of on the fly. We know what our encores were from last year. Um, we'll probably come up with some combination of something different. You know, we... We don't change our sets around a whole ton. We don't, like, do different sets every night. We usually get a set that we like, how it feels, kind of like an album is, you know, and uh, we kind of stick to that and maybe move a few songs around from time to time. Uh, but this will be a new tour, so we'll be fitting in a couple things off of Tomorrow's Daughter and, you know, moving around a couple things from... Uh, tomorrow forever and then getting them to sort of fit with all the things that are more you know the classics well i want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me uh it's a great uh, interview I, I like talking to you and you've had a great career and people his website is matthewsweet.com at twitter you're at i am matthew sweet do you tweet a lot uh i don't really you know um i've just never gotten in the habit of saying stuff, you know, kind of about myself. The closest thing, you know, I have my management doing my Twitter. They do my Facebook. 
Um, the closest thing to all that that I really have gotten into at all is Instagram. I, I, I can occasionally have like a photo I want to take and I'm like, this is cool. I could post it on Instagram, you know. Um, but I've only dabbled in it, you know, a little bit. So I'm still a little bit more like they try to encourage me to do more social media content. Um, and out in the world, you know, more people are sort of doing it. So they'll ask me to do little selfie videos to promote things and stuff. But uh, I am kind of, you know, I'm very into the Internet and I consume a lot of reading, a lot of news, uh, a huge amount of just entertainment stuff. Um, but I just haven't gotten into having a bunch of relationships that I sort of need to manage, you know. Every time I've tried to do it, I think, you know, I'm just going to blog all the time, you know, right. and I'll do like one blog post and then I just don't feel like blogging, you know. Right. So it's just not that natural for me as a person, I guess, but I try to be positive about it and open-minded, you know. Exactly. So people, go check out Matthew Sweet. Buy his new album. You can pre-order it now. Tomorrow's Daughter. Go check out his website, MatthewSweet.com. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 680 episodes up there. You can also email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm at CooperTalk1. And don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. You know, it was six years ago when I had that bad heart problem and I had to change my diet. So I went out and I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes for one. There's no pictures to oh, intimidate you guys. There's no long list of ingredients. That's fantastic. Yeah, and so I, I wrote that after I got out of the hospital. And so people, go to StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Amazon, but if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I will sign it and I make more money. So people, don't forget, go check out Matthew Sweet. Follow him on Instagram. Buy his uh, album. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.